Well, good morning. It is good to see you all out this morning on this rainy, kind of drizzly December morning. Take your Bibles, if you will, with me and turn to 1 Thessalonians as we continue in our study. And we're going to, Lord willing, stop after today the series for a time. We're going to enter into the Christmas series that leads all the way up to the culmination, building all the way to Christmas Eve nights and the service that is there. So morning and evening will all tie together over the next several weeks as we move our way towards Christmas. But as we do so, we're in a very important text and one that we're going to get into in just a moment. I do want to leave one more comment regarding the Church Center app. And that is, as you go in, you look in your bulletin, you have the QR codes there and uh, you watch one of those videos on how to get into the Church Center app, how to download the app, how to uh, sign up for the directory, and all of that. That was all created in-house, that entire video. And uh, Scott mentioned it. I just want to reiterate it. Our staff in the office has been fantastic, uh, putting all of this together, working through the bugs and the wrinkles of um, instigating a new software. The software is that which does all kinds of things for us, makes our jobs a lot easier, uh, but also allows you to get a lot more information. And so I'm very thankful for them and the time and the effort and the energy uh, to modernize our uh, systems in the office and then to incorporate you all into that process. And so we're very thankful for them. Uh, the one beautiful thing about the video is you can go on and you say, I lost it. I, I got in, I watched the video, I started following in the tutorial, and then I lost my place. Go back and re- watch the video again. Uh, there, you'll learn a lot each time. In fact, as they did it, put it together, I like, oh, I've, I've been in the Church Center app for a long time, and I learned a few things in the process, and so we're very thankful uh, for them. I encourage you uh, to get involved, put your information in the directory and all of that so we can uh, enjoy that time together. It's safe, it's protected, and so we're very thankful for the work that our staff is doing. As we do turn into 1 Thessalonians, this is a passage, frankly, where it's one that we see uh, theologically. In fact, uh, great volumes have been written, especially in dispensational circles, on this one text that is before us. But I do not want us to lose sight that Paul is writing this passage in a pastoral compassion. The reason that he is writing this, led by the Spirit of God, is there is suffering and loss. And this message ties in to the great and joyful message of Christmas. But it also ties into the grueling, uh, dreary days where we are experiencing searing loss. I had a friend who, a pastoral friend, who posted uh, this tribute that was uh, just written this past week. It was a tribute of a young man who had lost his wife to breast cancer. And he writes this, and it captures the suffering of a believer. I've shortened it considerably, but there's two paragraphs I want to draw out. On November 29th, the Lord called a woman named Robin home. She was 42 years old. And her husband penned these words. He said, my dear sweet wife, the light of my life, the joy of my soul, the mother of my children, the wife of my youth, has died. I was at her side as she took her last breath. I'm so sad. I'm halved. 
I'm undone. My best friend has left me to go to our Savior. He continues on and extolling on uh, his uh, precious wife's life and ministry and love for the Lord. And then he concludes with these words. It says, the pain of The pain of this loss is heartbreaking. He writes, she was so sad and broken to leave me and the kids behind. She would have given anything for more time with us. But she knew that this was just a pause. She would be with the Lord and meet us again one day. Please pray for me and my children that we would grieve yet trust. Lament yet rest. Cry, yet hope. And most of all, that we would remember that Christ is Lord over all. Nothing is beyond His sovereign control. Nothing can separate us from His love. God is good. He gives and He takes away, Job 1, 21. And He has every right to do so. He has always and only been good to me and my family. The idea we focus on this morning as we begin to understand the return of Christ is that the believer's hope transcends the pain of loss and expectantly anticipates eternity. That is what is different about your hope from those who have no hope in a hopeless world. And so as we begin this morning in a text that you have heard many, many times, if you have been around dispensational circles, you've certainly studied it, you've looked into it for its ramifications to the rapture, but let us look into it as Paul wrote it this morning. He didn't write it this morning, but let us look into it this morning as Paul wrote it. And that is he wrote it as a pastoral compassion for those who are grieving the same pain that this young husband grieves for his wife. Let us begin this morning in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are those who bow our heads before you, experiencing, even this week, the pain of searing loss as there is separation in this life from those that we love. Lord, we know that over the last three years especially, we have lost a significant number of those of us who have gone on to be with you, their Savior. We are grateful for their life and their testimony. We're grateful for the time spent with them, but we are far more grateful. As precious as those things are, we are far more grateful that you are faithful and true and have given to us a hope in a world that has no hope. Lord, it is the message of Christmas. It is the reminder of the work that Christ would do in his earthly life and ministry leading up to and coming away from the crucifixion, the resurrection, and giving us victory and being the first fruits of the living among the dead. So Lord, we praise you that today we can rest and as Paul says, encourage one another with these words, knowing that you will do what you said you're going to do knowing that indeed the separation we feel and the pain of searing loss is only temporary. And it is that which causes us to anticipate with greater anxiousness the return of Christ in the rapture. So Lord, these are encouraging things for us and hopeful things. 
And it reminds us of the reason of Christmas. It reminds us of the message that is to be told to the nations. And therefore, it reminds us of the text and the responsibilities, the effort that we must now proclaim. And that your name would be glorified in all that we do and say. We ask your blessing upon your, our time and your word. And we pray that you'd give me the words to speak and, and all of us the hearts to listen. That your name would be glorified in it. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning we will move somewhat rapidly because of the depth of our study. It's going to be more on the shallow side because we have often studied this text deeply. We've often looked into it and we've looked into every nuance and what does it mean for this to happen and this word capture and, and all, of, all of the details that we find. We recognize that there's a time and a place for that, but Paul in this moment while this is a great theological truth, is proclaiming this to those who are grieving, those who are suffering loss. And he begins by reminding us that there is hope in a hopeless world. We look into verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where the scripture says, and I'm going to read all the way through 18, and then we're going to come back and work our way through it. Verse 13 says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who, do not ha- who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. As we dig into this, we recognize that Paul is not stifling, nor is he trying in any way to diminish the agony of mind in the sufferings. He is reminding them that there is hope, but he is not diminishing their agony. He's not saying, just get over it. I know it hurts, but don't think about it. He's he's not giving some pop psychology answer. He's not giving the the dad answer of rub dirt on it and get over it. There There is clarity to Paul's recognition that there is agony in loss, and he does not diminish it. This section, as I've said, is typically viewed only for its doctrine, and that is very, very important. It's riching and encouraging, but Paul is addressing a pastoral matter. He's addressing a matter as a shepherd. And he's recognizing the agony of loss. The problem was for the Thessalonians that even in the short time that Paul had been absent from them, some of their close friends, some of their loved ones had died and they were concerned. The Thessalonians were concerned that those who had died would miss out on the second coming of Christ. And so Paul is clarifying this great truth All sorts of gargantuan questions were going through their minds. Not only were they suffering loss, but the question was, would they be left behind? Those who had perished, would they be left behind? Would Christ bring them to Him? They lived for Christ. Would they actually have the opportunity to be with Christ? What was actually happening to them in that moment? Are they all right? Will we see them again? And where are they now? All of these huge questions that the world tries to gloss over and says, well, it's, it's only going to be okay. 
And really, deep down, they know they don't know. They don't know. But Paul says to the believers, we do know. And we do know what is going to happen as soon as Christ returns for his church. And that's what he's about to provide for the Thessalonians. This is the pastoral insight, the deep satisfaction to the great needs of their pain of searing loss. The saints in Thessalonica anticipated the soon return of Christ. And yet, in the anticipation of seeing Christ, they noticed that they're getting older and that they're dying. Even though it had been such a short period of time, they began to notice there are those who followed Christ who are now perishing in this life. They had experienced the great pains of suffering and death. The question of what happens to those who passed away before them, before the return of Christ, had caused confusions and concerns. And don't we see this happening all around us today? We see the same kind of suffering. We see the same kind of hurt. We know we must deal with death. We know we must be those who engage in death because death is happening There's a separation, which is what the word death means, is a separation. We know there's separation. We know there's loss. We know there's pain and there's suffering. And it never comes at a convenient time. As if there were such a thing. We see this happening all around us in the world today. And we could easily be driven to the precarious edge of despair. When we are backed into a corner and the pain of hurt and loss... Is like a consuming fire. We do not need platitudes to satisfy. We need real hope. And the writer of Hebrews provides a beautiful picture of what Paul is providing for the Thessalonians. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, he writes this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that can enter into the inner places behind the curtain. Beloved, when the sands of life shift and swirl, our anchor in Christ is sure. It does not give way. It does not move with the waves. It does not shift with the sands. It is steadfast and unmovable. And Paul is beginning to jump into that for the Thessalonians when he says this in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. As Paul begins to speak of a believer's sleep, we begin to recognize that there is a a number of word pictures for the death of the saints of God and for death in general. The fear that the believers felt in Thessalonica was due in part to their ignorance, their unknowing of what was going to take place, and that was driving some of their sufferings. And so Paul is seeking to alleviate that suffering by pointing them to the one who can satisfy in every way. And so Paul is writing to inform these true believers of the truth that they will face even as they face searing pain at loss. And he begins by calling what has taken place in the life of a believer who has passed away this word picture of saying that they have fallen asleep. But this isn't the only word picture. Notice how Scripture, quickly I'm going to run through a number of these illustrations, these word pictures that Scripture uses for death. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 27, death is set as a snare before us. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. And so the fear of the Lord is what pulls us from these snares. It is 
that which is set for us. The fear of the Lord turns us from the entrapment of it. In Psalms 18, verse 4, David admitted that death is like a sorrow. The shepherd king himself says, the sorrows of death have entangled me. Death is a sorrow that entangles. Third illustration taken from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, where the prophet who is the author of the great gospel of the Old Testament writes this. He says that death, that he reminds those who are living, are living in the land of the shadow of death. Last one that we're going to look at before the one that we see in 1 Thessalonians comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 55 in the same text that was read for us a few moments ago. It comes just following that, those verses where Paul, challenging death in 1 Corinthians 15, asks the question, where, O oh, death, is your sting? And death is seen as a sting. All of these are true for believers and unbelievers alike. Death, throughout the pages of Scripture, has been given a number of word pictures. And here, Paul begins to focus specifically on the life of the believer and the death of the believer. And right here in verse 13, death is described as sleep. When a Christian dies, it is like they have fallen asleep. When they place their head on the pillow, they are waiting for the dawn of a new day and longing for the resurrection morning. After an evening of rest, there comes this morning of rejoicing, one author says. And so it is like falling asleep. But for those of us who remain, we must understand how to cope with death. And so Paul continues, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who others do who have no hope one of the first funerals that I did when I first entered into full-time ministry in my first church and I was a brand new pastor I'd only done uh, maybe one other funeral service and that was for a kind of shared with somebody else and it was for a family member and so that was a bit of a different scenario but the first one that I encountered was a young man he'd come home he was 30 or he was rather 29 years old He had come home from working. He worked for the highway department. He had been out working that day, had come home to take a brief nap on the couch, and he was going to go pick up his son from school, and he never made it to the school. He passed away while he was sleeping. This man wasn't a believer. He was going through a divorce with his wife, and there were significant challenges there. I get a phone call. They had no connection to the church. I get a phone call from a friend of the now uh, widow who was divorcing just moments earlier, and now she's a widow. I get a call from her friend saying, we need your help. And I go over that night, it's late at night, and that night she comes to Christ as Savior. Two weeks later, her son would come to know Christ as Savior. But when I would do that funeral, I remember sitting behind the lectern in the funeral home and thinking, this is is cold this aches there is no hope and then i stood up and proclaimed the only hope which is christ to a room that was packed with all of the highway department all of the state troopers all of the county officials and all of his family and a large funeral at that over 500 people were there 
And it's my first funeral. And yet, all of the elements, all of the pieces of the service pointed to despair and loss. On the casket, flowers was a six-pack of Budweiser that was to be their celebration at the end of the day. No hope. No hope. Death tends to be an unwelcome intruder in our lives. And generally speaking, it is an uninvited guest. Death has been variously described as the king of terrors, and at the same time, it is the terror of kings. The Bible assumes that believers will grieve. The Bible assumes that you will suffer when someone has passed away. That you will grieve when somebody close to you is removed from this life. Yet the Bible also assumes that unlike that cold, dark, hopeless funeral that I just described, that the believer will grieve with hope because of what Christ has done for us. Never dismissing or diminishing the pain and the hurt and always finding hope in a hopeless world, not because there is hope in the world, but because there's hope in Christ. And so that is where Paul turns. And notice where he goes as he begins to help us understand how we are to grieve as believers. And he moves into verses 14 and 15. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Can you imagine the joy of the believers in Thessalonica with just that one sentence. Wait, Paul, you mean that those who have passed away, we will see them again? And they will be with Christ when Christ comes for us? It's important that we understand what we believe. When a believer dies, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that they're absent from the body and present with the Lord. There is an instantaneous change of location. There is not a gradual process. There's not a, a, a time where it takes for you to move through some other element or some other world. There is absent from the body, present with the Lord. The moment the believer passes away, they are ushered into the arms of the Savior, healthy and whole, without suffering, without the pain that we experience. Paul reminds the believers of this truth, of what they believe, by reminding us of the two great fundamental truths of the gospel. First, in verse 14, he says that uh, the first element is that Jesus died. And the second is that, and he rose again. Those are the, the core elements to our hope. Our hope is not based upon your efforts or your capacity to do good things. That is hopelessness. Our hope is found that Christ died for you and he rose again. That's our hope. And Paul builds a great theological truth of that in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Thessalonians. And that's why we read what we did in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because Paul is addressing the same concerns with them. These two are core tenets of the gospel. It is, should not be any surprise to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 3 that Paul lays out the gospel in simple terms. 
It's not a tremendous amount of depth, but it's clear, it's simple, and it's to the point, and it's complete. There's nothing missing. No components are missing. And then immediately as he finishes that, he begins to talk about the resurrection of believers and how that is true. 1 Corinthians 15, speaking of the resurrection of those who have passed on before the Lord's return. These are core tenets. The gospel is tied directly to what happens next for you and I. And Paul is clear about that. Paul is saying that since Christ died and rose again, then you will follow the same pattern. Notice what he says again. He says, verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, there's going to be those who have passed away in the presence of the Lord. They're returning. And why? Verse 15, For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There's going to be a reunion for believers. And there's going to be that reuniting together. Jesus died, but that's not the end of the story. It doesn't end there. Every religious system of the world ends there. Somebody died. Their leader, their religious leader, their fanatic, or whoever it was, has died. Or never lived to begin with. But that's not the end of the story for Christ. Christ died, and he rose again. He rose on the third day as he said he was going to do before he died. For us, we will die unless we're taken in the rapture, which is my prayer. But for us, otherwise, we will die. But thank God, we will also rise like Christ. This means that the rapture, listen carefully, because this is where I'm going to rabbit trail into the theological for just a moment. It's not a rabbit trail as much as it's just not where we're going this morning. But it is important for you and I to understand that this truth, that because Christ died and rose again, and you and I will join in that, we will also rise. This means that the rapture is built not on a theological whimsy, but on the substitutionary death of Christ. That was a perfect satisfaction to God for sins. This is not theological whimsy. This, the resurrection for the believers, is the hope based on the work of Christ, based on what Christ has done for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul calls the resurrection of Christ, or speaking of the resurrection of Christ, as the first fruits, that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, the pattern of Christ, the example of Christ and his resurrection is what provides you and I not only our example, but what will happen for us. It's the evidence of it. The resurrection of Christ means you and I will not cease living. We will cease living in the body temporarily. And we will be ushered immediately alive to our Savior. And then one day, the body will be glorified and be reunited. And that day is the day that Paul's about to describe. He's going to give us the details. The rapture for the church, or the rapture of the church, rather, for Paul, is the pastoral compassion for those who are suffering in grief. 
Paul says, I know you're hurting today. I know there's suffering today. As I was working on this message, I've thought back. It was actually three years ago, this Sunday, that I stood in the pulpit for the very first time as your pastor. I came a couple, weeks, or a couple months earlier to candidate and all of that process, but three years ago, this Sunday, was the first time as your pastor. And I reflected over those last three years and the number of folks that we have lost in our fellowship who have passed away, who have gone to be with the Lord. I reflected back over the years of ministry that I've had and the number of those who I have ministered to in life and then ministered to their family as they passed away. These things that Paul is speaking are great encouragement when a church fellowship or a family has gone through suffering. But I want us to also understand that it is the truth of eternity. Notice what Paul says. He says in verse 15, For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord. Isn't it fascinating that the apostle says that phrase? I find it fascinating that Paul doesn't say, by the authority of me as an apostle of Jesus Christ, I write to you. He doesn't write that way. He does that in other places. But here, Paul says, I'm going to give you the word from the Lord. This isn't some modern day shenanigans. This is the apostle Paul, inspired of the Holy Spirit to write to the Thessalonians. He's not coming up with some word from the Lord today, and I'm going to tell you what that is, and it has no bearing in truth, and it has no bearing in Scripture. It has every bearing in that. What Paul is doing is he's saying, I'm not even writing in my authority as an apostle, which I could authoritatively do. So I'm telling you, this is what the Lord wants you to know. Paul is at pains to remind them that these promises are not a figment of his fertile imagination. He's not just drafting them out of nowhere. There is nothing illusionary or dreamlike about it. These things are not philosophical speculation. Paul says he's declaring the word of the Lord. The reason that I spend so much emphasis on those few points is this. We live in an evangelical world that has tried to diminish and distort what Paul is saying right here. And it is essential that we understand with clarity and with literacy what Paul is writing. Paul is being literal. He is giving us word pictures, certainly, but he's not trying to trick us. He's not trying to play an evil game on us that we would somehow try to figure out the truth interweaving between the lines. He's telling us what has to be told to us. He's telling us directly. The rapture of the church must be taken at face value. Paul is speaking plainly and directly. It must be taken that way. And that is not a popular message in our community. It's not a popular message in covenant theology. But that's the message of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this is what Paul reminds us as we look to the word of the Lord there in verse 15. This is what, the, what Paul reminds us in understanding that the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. 
beginning in verse 16. This is where so many times before that I've preached through this text, I've spent so much more time on verses 16 and 18. And it pains me not to do it, other than our purpose is this. We want to see where Paul is instructing. You can sit in my systematic theology class later. Uh, We're not studying this today, but later on down the road, and we will get into the theological nuances and importance of this text. But for today, Paul's writing as a pastor concerned for those who are grieving. And he gives them astounding theological truth that we feast on often. But let us understand it as Paul's writing it. Let us understand it as Paul is saying to those who are hurting. This is our hope. This is our hope. The Lord is coming again. And we are looking forward to the trumpet sound. Notice what he says in verses 16 through 18. He says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the voice, rather, excuse me, with the cry of command and the voice of the archangel. And the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There's a danger. There's a danger here, and we're trying to walk a fine line. There's a danger in, the, in our understanding of the text, not in the text itself, but in our understanding, that we would leave these as mindless platitudes that we would just say this is the right thing to say. It's what we hear at the graveside. is what we hear during the funeral service. So we're just going to gloss over it, letting its familiarity just wash over us and not listen. Then there's the other danger of digging so deeply into it that we're dissecting every element and we're distorting it from its context. Its context is Paul is saying, believers in Thessalonica, I know the tears of your loss. I know that you feel as this young husband at the beginning who feels like he's been halved. What a striking statement. I feel as as if I've been halved, cut in half. Because I know that pain. I know that hurt. But the Lord is coming. This is our encouragement. We do not despair because there's no hope. We despair in our grieving. We despair in our loss. But that is all limited. And it's limited to the time that Christ returns. And so we are listening for trumpets. Paul begins to detail the events of the rapture. It's important that we understand that this is the next event on God's prophetic calendar. There's nothing that has to happen before this. We're not waiting for Israel to become a nation. We're certainly not waiting for world peace because that will not happen. We're not waiting for some sort of uh, government to be established. We're not waiting to become uh, some super utopia in any way. We are waiting for the trumpet. That's the next event. For those who are trying to see signs of the times, listen for the trumpet. That's the next one. That's the next one. 
the rapture is imminent. It, it was imminent for the believers in Thessalonica, and Paul is writing it that way, and it's imminent for us. There is nothing else necessary to happen before the sounds of the trumpet. So don't look for those. Listen for the sounds of the trumpet and anticipate the sounds of the trumpet. Remember that while this is a great theological truth, Paul is presenting it as comfort for those who have lost loved ones. Paul is writing it so that those who grieve would grieve with understanding and a renewed energy and vitality in serving Christ. The dead in Christ, Paul says, will rise first when the trumpet sounds and the cry of command and the voice of the archangel. The rapture is a personal event. It's a personal event. It is at the cry of the command of the at the cry of command the Lord himself will descend. The Lord himself will come for the church. The Lord himself will come for all believers who know Christ is savior from the time of the formation of the church at Pentecost to the time when Christ returns. And so therefore those who have passed away, they're going to respond to the call. They're actually going to respond first. Evidently they're listening better than the rest of us. That's that's not a theological truth. And even as I said it, I shouldn't say that. But they're going to be the ones who respond immediately. The dead in Christ will rise first when the trumpet sounds. The rapture is personal because the Lord will come for us. Can you imagine that reunion? When the dead in Christ, who are with Christ, they're coming with him, the text says. The dead in Christ will be reunited now with a glorified body that's not broken like this one's broken. That's not ailing like this one's ailing. That's not stained like this one's stained. And they're going to be reunited with their body. That will be a glorious thing. But it will also be a glorious thing to walk into the arms of the Savior who personally has returned to call you home. In fact, those who passed away get that twice. The moment they pass away, they're safe in the arms of the Savior. The moment that they're glorified, they'll be ushered again to the presence of the Savior. And they've not lost that since they're passing away. But they'll be welcomed again, now glorified bodies to the Savior. But there's three sounds. And these three sounds are welcome or ought to be welcome in the ears of the believers. The first is the cry. This is a military expression, and it is a cry that calls people to attention. This is the ten hut. This is the pay attention, stand up, and be ready. That's the cry. The second is the archangel's voice, and it will signal the breaking of diplomatic relations from the heavenly realm to the earthly realm. Why is that important? Because this will usher in the next prophetic event. We're not waiting for the tribulation. We're waiting for the rapture. And the archangel's message will end diplomatic relations as he shouts the king of kings. And he shouts the presence of the Lord coming. By the way, there's a coming again. Uh, second full coming, the coming all the way to the earth that will come at the end of the millennial kingdom. But this is a precursor. This is a precursor 
and it shows that the wrath of God is about to be poured out on the face of this planet. And then the trumpets. The trumpets are fascinating to me, and if you have time, just study trumpets throughout the Old Testament and see when they were used. One of my favorite times that they were used is in the book of Nehemiah, and Ezra speaks of it as well, at the building of the walls. And the shofars, the long horn blows. When I was in Jerusalem last time, we were up against the western wall, and you would hear the shofar blow. And it would reverberate off the wall. And they were, it's celebration, it's party, and everybody gets, draws in the attention, so it's lost some of its meaning. But when the shofars stood on the wall, the completed walls in Nehemiah's time, it's as if the valley shook. When the trumpet of the Lord calls, the dead in Christ will rise. Their bodies glorified and rising again. And Paul says, we who are yet alive will be caught up with them. We'll get there in just a moment. But what are the trumpets about? The trumpets are used to gather the crowd. In other words, attention, diplomatic relations have been ceased, and let's gather. Let's gather. The trumpet calls believers to Christ, dead and alive. We should be listening for trumpets. But Paul goes on. He says, that we who are alive will be caught up. And there's been a lot to do about this word, a lot of theological study. Again, we're reminding ourselves that Paul is writing to believers who are suffering. He says this in verse 17, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. What a sight to behold. There's all kinds of those who have written in literature and they've produced in film trying to depict what will what will happen on this day, what these events will look like, I think they're all woefully short. I don't think we can describe what's going to happen on that day. When the dead in Christ open up the graves and rise to meet Christ in the air. I don't know what we'll see. I don't know if we'll see any of it. But I know that even if we see it or we don't, it will be glorious beyond our description. It'll be glorious beyond our imagination. And then we who are alive will be snatched. That's what caught up means, snatched with them, plucked out. Saints, the reason I believe this word is used is that saints are snatched from the clutches of Satan. They're snatched from the fallen world. They're snatched from the serious limitations of the flesh. They're snatched from the jaws of death. They're snatched from the confines of the grave. They're snatched away from the coming wrath of God. They are caught up to meet Christ in the air. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says, We will not all die, but those who remain alive at this time will be changed, given glorified bodies. This is one of the reasons I pray for the return of Christ, eminently so, in the rapture. There's other more significant reasons. This is a selfish one. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be given a glorified body before you have to breathe your last breath? But if that does not happen, how glorious it will be to be reunited with your body. Glorified, perfect, prepared for the Lamb of God. This is several elements. One of the reasons that we are caught 
up together with them in the clouds is to meet the Lord in the air and listen, so that we will always be with the Lord. We will never be separated from His presence again. The pain of death is separation. That's what death means, separation. But in that separation, when we are separated in death, we are no longer separated from Christ. We are brought into His presence, but listen carefully, this is only for those who know Christ as Savior. The core tenets of what Paul is giving as our hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have never come to know Christ as Savior, you are hopeless in a hopeless world. Listen to the message of Christ. Accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ died in your place on your behalf and then rose again, giving you victory over sin and death and is the first fruits so that you would understand the resurrection. Maybe not an understanding intellectually, but an actuality where you'll be caught up together with Christ. Beloved, without Christ, we are hopeless. But with Christ, we have hope that is unchanging, unmoved, and a sure anchor in a world of sifting sand. We do not sift. We are grounded because of Christ. It's interesting that this time that we will be with the Lord, we will always be with the Lord, means that we are going to know Christ better as we'll be caught up with Him. We're going to know Him more. This isn't just a We'll be in his presence and he'll be over in his room and you're going to be in your room and you're never going to meet. That's not what it means. The idea that Paul expresses here is an intimate knowledge, an intimate relationship with a Savior forever. Never to be separated again. All of this imagery, by the way, and just a brief word here, all of this imagery Jesus himself spoke in John chapter 14 where he did give it as a picture of going away to prepare a place for us. And when he's done preparing a place for us, he would come again and meet us. This is a picture of a Jewish wedding. That's why I say it's imagery. It's theological truth. It's literal. It's direct. But there is the imagery of the Jewish wedding. The Jewish wedding is where the bridegroom would go off. He'd prepare the house for his bride. And as he prepared that house for his bride, once that house was completed, they would meet in the middle at an assigned place, in an assigned location, at an assigned time. And there, she would come halfway and he would come halfway. And there would be the marriage feast. Beloved, what Paul is speaking of is the same thing that Christ was speaking of in John chapter 14. We are being invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you, who know Christ as Savior, will be invited into the presence of the Lamb of God who is the bridegroom, who's been preparing a place for us, that where he is, we may be also. What a joy this is, and it reminds us again that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Beloved, in the pain of suffering, Scripture does not diminish the hurt. It does not say, just get over it. In fact, we see the grieving of the saints of God We see the heartache, we see the loss. We see the grieving of the saints of God throughout history, not just in Scripture, but throughout history. 
And Paul says this, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. These are not to be platitudes. These words are not just to roll off our tongue in a quick hug and we move away. When you are suffering, dwell in these things. Take great joy and solace in knowing that Christ will do what He said He's going to do. And that you will, if you know Christ as Savior, spend eternity in His presence and glory beyond your imagination. And we are to be longing for the trumpets. Listening for the trumpets. Paul says we are to comfort one another with these words. And again, it is a reminder that the next event is the rapture. We're looking forward to this. We're planning for this. We're, we're angling for this time. But the Lord knows when that appointed time is. And when He comes, He will not be early. And He will not be late. Let us be there with Him. So therefore, if you don't know Christ as Savior, you're not yet invited. The work's all done for you. But you've got to accept. You've got to accept Christ as your Savior. Confessing your own sin before the Lord and accepting the work of Christ, Christ alone. Paul says to comfort one another with these words. The return of Christ for the church reminds us that Christ will finish what he started. His promises will be kept. All of them. In eternity, that will be the position of every believer. That will be your location and your identity. It'll be the position of every believer. And the stain of sin and death will be dealt with. And so the heart that's grieving is the heart that could be encouraged and should be encouraged knowing that Christ knows the hurt. He took on our sins and He died. And then He rose again. Giving to us life and life everlasting, if we'll accept in Him. This is essential. It's the core of our belief, and it's foundational to our hope. And it points us to the reason why Christ came for Christmas. And so now we're ready. We're ready to launch into the Christmas season, having moved through 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let us close this portion of our service and prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for the text that has been before us and the time to study it together. Lord, we ask your blessing as we continue to lift your voice in song, and I pray that we would be diligent in giving hope to one another when we are the ones suffering from grief, that others would minister to us when we are ministering to those in grief, that we would minister with these words, not in platitudes, placating the suffering, telling others to get over it, but rather to give them the reason that they have hope. Lord, we praise you that Christ is our reason for hope. And as we now sing these songs to conclude our service, I pray that we would do so with renewed vigor, renewed energy, and a hope that transcends our own hopelessness, that we would look to Christ, and that Christ would be glorified in our lives, and that we would be longing for the sound of the trumpet and the voice of the archangel the cry of command, and that we would obey. We long for this day. It's in Christ's name we pray.